The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good evening, Park Church. Tonight's scripture is Psalm 44. If you don't have a Bible with you, you will find one in the pew back in front of you, somewhere around you. And if you don't have one at home, feel free to take that with you as a gift from Park Church. So again, that scripture is Psalm 44. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. O oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like, like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, nor, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Happy 4th of July. Come on. It's 5 p.m. service. We don't have fireworks, but it's fine. Um, we, uh, my wife and I got to spend this last week uh, with um, a, a, a huge gathering of Acts 29 lead pastors from all over the world um, in Miami, Florida. Um, the upside I'll mention in just a minute. The downside was walking outside was like being 
um, a, a hot bucket of water being poured on you and a rag being tied around your face that you had to breathe through. Um, but, but, but the week itself was absolutely an amazing experience of, of getting to interact with, pray with, worship with, hear stories from um, pastors from all over the world who are part of this network that we get to be, um, get, get to be connected to. Um, Acts 29, we joined Acts 29 when we first started the church. Um, and at that time, there was about 80, 80 churches or so in the network worldwide. Um, now there's close to 500 churches. Acts 29 is a church planting network, which means it was founded on the idea, the belief that, um, that, that God intends to keep his promises. His promises are that he will fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That surrounding the throne of Jesus will be men and women from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and they will worship him forever and ever and ever. And the, the, the primary intended means by which God intends to do this is the establishment of new churches all over the world. And it's incredible to go year after year after year. It's one of the, it's one of the highlights of our year to get to stand in a room full of pastors, um, many of whom weren't there last year, who since that time have started new churches in, in, in all, literally everywhere. Um, I get to sit down with a, a pastor named Athol. Um, he is a, a pastor in Leith, Scotland. It's just a, just north of Edinburgh. Um, uh, four years ago, I, I met him um, at a pub through a, a series of connections. Um, my family and I were on a, on a vacation in Scotland, and I, I got to spend an evening with him there just before he started Grace Church Leith. Um, since then, we as a church have been supporting him, and it's amazing to sit. We sat in a hotel lobby for about an hour and a half as he recounted story after story after story of people who've come from death to life, people who didn't know Jesus a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, um, through the sovereign grace of God working through this church, have come to know him in, in a place like, in a place like Leith in Edinburgh, Scotland. I got to spend a lot of time with Philip, um, hearing more stories of things that are happening in Paris. Um, we're, we're a part of this network because we believe in church planting. And, and it's a blast to think that we as a church have been supporting, giving, praying for um, these churches. And, and in a place like Paris, at the dead center of Paris, a year ago there wasn't a church there. Um, and now, um, through, the, through the, the, the goodness of God and us getting to be a part of that, that there's a church now where there wasn't one a year ago. Um, it's an amazing thing to be reminded year after year after year that, that what we're a part of is much bigger than just us. Um, it's not about simply this one local church in our city, but rather it's us participating, us partnering with, us being in community with a whole series of churches all over the United States and even in our city, partnering together to see new churches started everywhere. Um, I, I, I feel like we don't do enough to, to hold up to you that all the different things that we're a part of all over the world and in our city. And, and it was a reminder to me that, that what we're doing is way bigger than us. Um, and, and so my hope and my prayer for us is that we would, we would have the courage, we'd have the vision, um, we would have the resources um, to, to even more orient our lives, orient our church body, and to see more churches started in places where th- the name of Jesus isn't loved, the name of Jesus isn't treasured, but where, there, where there, are no, there, there, there are very few people bearing witness to what God has accomplished in Christ. But this is what we're a part of. Um, and it's an amazing thing to think what God is doing um, through, through really everyday gifts that you give. Um, when you give money to Park Church, you're, you're not just supporting its staff. You're not just making sure that the air conditioner kind of works. Um, but but you're, you're actually participating in what God is doing in places like France, in places like Turkey, in places like Edinburgh, Scotland. 
God is establishing um, communities of faith to bear witness to who he is and what he's done. And we get to be a part of that. That's a lot of fun. So let me pray for us and we will turn to Psalm 44. So Father, I ask, I ask even in light of, of getting to sit in a room with pastors who are, are in really, really hard places, really, really beautiful places, really, really difficult places, in different phases of life and in, in, in the course of the, the establishment of new churches. God, we pray right now that you would give us as a body a clear vision of what it means to contribute to that, to, to, get, to, to get to participate in, in, in that glorious mission. Not, not only to see our neighbors come to know Jesus, oh God, may, may we participate in that. Not just to see our coworkers and our family members come to know Jesus, oh God, may we, may we be a part of that. But, but to see whole communities of faith, whole churches established all over this planet where your name isn't known, where the, the gospel isn't treasured and believed, where the glorious good news that you love us, that you've cleansed us of our sins, that you've reconciled us to yourself, um, that, that there's no one there to announce that. That we get to be a part of, of seeing that, of helping to facilitate that announcement going forth. So God, may we have vision for that. May we have a passion for that in this place. May it be something that we celebrate and we love to participate in. But, oh God, may we be marked by, by a passion and a zeal for your name among all the peoples of the earth. And now, God, as we turn to this psalm, I pray that you'd give us the gift, really the the gracious gift of being able to just be honest with where we are, of being able to look at the the circumstances of our lives and where they're difficult to confess to you that they're difficult, where they're good to give thanks to you for their goodness. And in the midst of all of those circumstances, being honest, bearing our soul with you, oh God, that we would find tonight comfort Glorious, rich, beautiful comfort in the, the absolute steadfastness of your covenant love for us. That, that, that our circumstances don't determine whether or not you delight in us and you love us. But rather, we are grounded and rooted in the love of Jesus. So God, tonight, particularly for those in this room who are struggling, who, who find themselves overwhelmed by trouble, I pray that your spirit might come and do what Paul describes in Romans 8. That he would ground us and root us in the love of God. And that he would call, he, he would cause us to call out to you as father. Knowing your love. Knowing that you do not condemn us. Knowing that, that you're rescuing us and redeeming us. And ready even now to reveal glory to us. So come. Do what no sermon, no turn of phrase, no illustration can do. Rather, send your spirit to, to help us to see and experience your love for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Charles Dickens wrote one of the great English novels. Um, in, in his novel, this very depressing, discouraging, troubling novel, um, there is an orphan at the center of the story named Pip. Um, Pip is, uh, Pip has a troubled life. Um, he has an abusive sister. He has a brother-in-law that, um, that, that is a blacksmith that he, um, up until a certain point of his life, his greatest aspirations, um, are to be a blacksmith and to live a blacksmith's life. And his great hope is the day that he can be kind of free from the bonds of where he's living and be a blacksmith. 
That is until he goes um, to live with his aunt. Now his aunt, as this is a complete aside, has nothing to do with sermon. He's one of the creepiest characters in all of English literature, really all of literature, just really creepy just to think about that she exists. Um, uh, she she uh, um, failed to get married early on. She's in her, um, she's into old age, and yet she's never taken off her wedding dress. Um, the, the Probably the creepiest detail is her wedding cake still sits on the dining room table um, from many, many years ago. That's neither here nor there. Her um, adopted daughter is, an, is a girl named Estella. Pip goes um, to stay with his aunt, meets Estella, and, and his first experience of, of kind of a genteel life, a life marked by privilege, a life marked, of, um, marked by what, what it would mean to live in London and live uh, among the elite. Um, he, he catches a vision of what that life is, and suddenly um, his expectations for his life, which had been very, very low, very, very common. If I can just escape kind of the, the abuse of my sister and, and become a blacksmith, and now all of a sudden they take him to a whole new level. He wants to be um, he wants to be a gentleman and what we see tracking through this character's life is trouble upon trouble upon trouble the greater his expectations and the farther he falls and he finds disappointment he finds darkness he finds difficulty it really is a quite depressing novel so if you need something you find yourself too chipper today i would encourage you if you've never read great expectations to go read it and then write your high school literature teacher and tell them that you should have read it in high school um so you wouldn't have to read it as an adult but um one of the things that um that happens at the very end of the novel, this, this whole story of this, of this poor man's life. Um, he comes to the end of his life, uh, he comes to the end of the novel, and, and the, the love of his life, Estella, who had actually been rather condescending to him as a child, um, he, he, she had been married, um, but now she is widowed. And the kind of the, the, the one of the closing scenes of the book, um, it's a line that's been debated for for many many years um, by scholars, as scholars in English literature like to do. Um, but but he is finally joined to Estella. Um, you don't actually see them get married. You don't actually know what's going to happen in the relationship. Um, but the line um, given at the end of the story of "Never will the shadow of our parting again fall upon us." Um, this implication that they'll never be parted again, um, that she won't be married to someone other than Pip, um, and then the kind of the, the story ends there. Um, and, and right here we, we run into kind of a historical curiosity that was not the original ending of Great Expectations. You see, Great Expectations was originally the story of Pip. Um, again, all of the trouble, all of the difficulty, all, the, uh, all of the, the desperate situations, all of the pain um, marking his life. And then it comes to the end. He's heard that Estella has been widowed. He goes to seek her out. He finds her. And, and by the time he finds her, she's already been remarried. Um, close the book. Last page is over. Despair. And this is how the original ending to the book went. It wasn't filled and marked at least at the end by hope. It was, it ended there with this, um, this finally, man, that you, you think he's, he's finally going to be, be united with his girl Estella. But instead you come to the end and she's already married. No hope. The great longing of his life ends. All we have is a life of despair and darkness and disappointment. You see, this um, th- this ending was put in place, and as Dickens began to circulate the book to his friends, um, as he began to circulate the book to his publisher especially, his publisher came to him, and they all said, and I quote, only imagine it with an English accent, um, this is simply too sad. It was their assessment of the book. And so they pleaded with him, hey, you need to change the end of the book. If you can just change the end of the book, um, we think this thing will be amazing. Maybe one of the greatest works of English literature. I don't know if they said that. But um, if you'll change the ending. So he changed the ending to the ending that we currently have. 
But, but what this, this historical curiosity tells us is, I think, quite telling. We hate trouble. We long for some sense that at least at the end, at least kind of getting through to the other side, there'll be some hope, there'll be some glimmer of light, there'll be something that kind of resolves the tension, I mean, the discordant notes will be resolved, and we'll have finally get a major chord out of the thing. Things will be like um, as we finally hope they would be. But we, we hope against hope as we look at Pip's life for our own life that it won't be trouble um, marked by disappointment, uh, marked by expectations dashed, uh, marked by sadness, marked by, um, marked by just weird, a weird aunt, um, mar- marked by all kinds of things, and then ending with, with disappointment. And we hope that somewhere along the line, something will change. Our lives are marked by trouble. They're marked by difficulty. They're marked by pain. And, and, and maybe as you come in this room tonight, you think everything's pretty much fine. It's 4th of July weekend. You watched fireworks last night. They were bright colors. Tonight, you're going to try to order U.S. tie. With the phone, will not, they won't pick up, and so you're going to get Chipotle. But even that little irritation is fine. Just a mild irritation. At the end of the day, your life feels like everything is okay. And, and yet, we've all been there. That's the thing that, um, as, as I've prayed through and thought about this text, and thought about where we are as a church. It was overwhelming to me to think that as we gather in this room tonight, all of us are coming from varying places. All of us are coming from different kinds of circumstances. Some of you walked in this room tonight and, and this psalm resonates with where your soul is. And all of us can probably remember a time when our soul resonated with these words. Our lives are marked by trouble, and we want we want to do anything we can to escape it. We we long for a day when our circumstances will change, and and so we move to new cities, we take new jobs. Man, we we long for the day when we can get married. We long for the day when, whenever the circumstance is, if that can change, then then I can I can finally I can step out of this this season of waiting, this season of disappointment, this season of difficulty, and I can step into finally what I want. I, I don't know how many people I've talked to in our church, I mean, guys who, who, who find themselves in just the day-to-day grind of a job that's marked by trouble, it's marked by discouragement. They, they, they go to bed on Sunday night, man, just frustrated. They've got to get up Monday morning and go to the same job again. And, and then they, they, they come up with this brilliant idea. If I can just change circumstances, if I can just get into a new job, then I'll be free of this trouble. And then they move into a new job. And guess what's there? A manager who's just a tool. And, and then those who, who've longed their whole life, I can just get married. If I can just have that spouse, if I can just cross the finish line, we can, we, we can do the deal, cut the cake, go on our honeymoon, um, and then begin our life together. And it's just this, this sense that, man, if I can just get away from the trouble of singleness, and let's be, let's be honest, there's a lot of trouble, particularly for single guys. But, but if you could just get to that, 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 that season, that new season where I'll finally be fulfilled, I'll finally get, get into new sets of circumstances, I'll get away from all of that trouble, and I'll find fulfillment. And then what happens? If you're newly married, I, I apologize for ruining the surprise. And you get six weeks in, 
Maybe, maybe he's really good at hiding it. And so you get 10 weeks in. But eventually, guess what comes? Trouble. That morning you wake up and you think, who is this person? Like, who are they? Are you a monster? Like, I've never thought that ever once in my life. But I'm sure that my wife has. Like, just trouble. It just comes. And I don't care how often you do CrossFit, how much you hike, how much you watch your calories and what you eat. A diagnosis will come. Trouble. And we do everything we can to find, is there a way out of this? Is there a way to escape this? Can I do something with my circumstances? Um, And yet, eventually we come to that place, I believe, if God is kind to us, we realize, like, I can't fix this. My, 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 my changed circumstances are not just going to make my life better. If I, it's not rearranging kind of the, um, the, the, the books or the, the things on my desk that will actually make my life better. No, um, I need something else. I am helpless as I look at the course of my life and realize, no, trouble is going to come. And I find glorious comfort in this song. I find comfort here and I find frustration here. Because if we come to Psalm 44, here's the frustration. The the psalmists don't kind of lay out for us a three-step plan for how to change your circumstances, change your life, change your outlook, and everything will be better. It just doesn't. Um, You'll look in vain in this book to find kind of a program for three steps of change. Um, Philip made the observation for us last week that this is not a self-help book. Um, and those who consider it a self-help book, man, it's the worst self-help book ever written in history. It's not going to help you change everything and make anything better. At least not in the way that the self-help um, kind of culture tries to do it. No, but, but, but the thing that's, that's frustrating um, is that it doesn't help us in those ways, in ways that we think we need help. Um, rather, but the ways that it's encouraging. All that we find in Psalm 44, not resolve, not fixed circumstances. Now we find that not a way out of our, our trouble, not a way out of our difficulty, but rather we find a way through it. But we find here um, a psalmist, the, the psalmist encouraging us, and I believe God calling us, commanding us, and not to, not to wait till we get our life together, not to wait till, till we get our discouragement kind of put aside, not, not to wait till we have a right attitude then to go to God. No, um, the, the beauty of Psalm 44, at least for me as I, as I begin to enter into it, is just the, the sheer absolute honesty. You don't have to get your heart right before you go and speak to your God. You can give expression to your frustrations, you can give, you can give expression to your discouragement, you can give expression to your doubts, you give expression to all of it, and bearing your soul before God. He's not, he's not saying, hey, go in the other room, work out your tantrum, and then come back to me, but when you've got your, all your theology and your attitude and your emotions in order. No, he just says, come to me. Lay your soul bare before me. And we turn to Psalm 44, and that's exactly what we find. Listen, listen to what the psalmists say, beginning of verse 9. But you have rejected us and disgraced us. You've not gone out with our armies. You've made us turn back from the foe. And those who hate us have gotten spoil. You've made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You've sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. 
You've made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. And then just even listen as he begins to plead with God in verse 23. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? Our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. He's not hiding anything here. He's being honest. He faces trouble. He's discouraged and he's despairing. But but here's the thing. They go to God. There's two temptations, at least two. Two that I've seen play out again and again and again when we face trouble. And and, and you see them hinted at um, all through this all through this psalm. But you don't see them play out all the way. The the two temptations I see play out again and again and again as I encounter men and women who know trouble is first to to begin to believe, to begin to to begin to say things like there is no God. There was a guy who was a a member of our church two years ago. He he was here. He had recently become a Christian. He he was gathering. He was excited about everything he was learning. Excited about um, the the things that he was hearing from the scriptures. And he could not get enough of God. He he studied the scriptures. He loved Jesus. And he began to date a girl in in another city. And so um, he he came to us and said, hey, I'm going to move to a different city. So he he got a job in the city where she lived. Um, He moved across the country to go and live in that city. Work that job and begin to... um, Eventually his goal was... Um, to date her and then to marry her. Um, he, he arrived and with a handful of months, I think it was two months in, she breaks up with him. She, she doesn't want anything to do with him. Um, she tells him, I don't love you. I don't want this relationship. I'm, I'm, I'm out. I'm gone. Um, and, and then two, um, he, he loses his job. And, and, and I, um, I, I'd, I'd gotten an email from him a couple of months ago. And in this email, he began to articulate uh, really some, some philosophical moorings as to why he didn't believe in God anymore. Uh, making the argument, making a, making a case for why he, he just saw too much evil in the universe, too much trouble in the universe, um, too much pain in the universe, and he didn't see really any clear evidence for the existence of God. And so I wrote him back and just asked if we could talk on the phone. And so we talked on the phone maybe a week afterwards, and, and we began to have this conversation that, that started very philosophical. He wanted to, he wanted to get into some apologetics, he wanted to get into some arguments for the existence of God or the non-existence of God or, or whatever. And at one point in the conversation, I just stopped him and I asked him to begin to tell me, hey, what happened to you? What happened in your life for the last two years? And he began to tell this story. And I think he was, he actually became honest in that moment. For him, it wasn't about philosophy. For him, it was, he'd just seen a lot of trouble. His girlfriend broke up with him. He lost his job. And in the midst of all of that pain, he began to doubt whether there was any God there at all. And I said this to him, um, he and I had a, you have to understand our relationship was a good one. Um, and I said, so let me get this straight, man. Your girlfriend broke up with you. You lost your job, so there is no God. And never mind the, the, the logical problems with that, with that line of reasoning. But that's often how we respond to trouble. 
consciously or subconsciously. I don't like the circumstances of my life. I can't imagine that there might be a God who who would lead me into or permit circumstances in my life that I wouldn't like. Therefore, he must not exist. Uh, Another uh, man that I I became friends with, um, one of the most gifted musicians I've ever known. He he, um, would take old hymns and rewrite them in in really beautiful arrangements. Hymns that we actually sing um, sing in our church often. And and, um, he'd become a very outspoken atheist. He was driving through Denver. I asked if I could buy him lunch. um, And I just wanted to hear his story. So so ironically, we went to Denver Ted's, which is the best cheesesteak sandwiches on earth, which is the clearest evidence that I know of that there is a God and he loves us. Um, and, and we went and we sat down for lunch one day when he was in town and just began to talk about, um, it began to talk about philosophy, began to talk about the existence of God, began to talk about all kinds of things. And he's going off, he's angry. He's aggressively angry. Not at me, but at a God he didn't actually believe in. <laughs> and so I began to, I did the same thing. I just began to ask, hey, what happened to you? But we literally are, are still sing songs that you wrote in our church gatherings, in our gatherings of a church. I mean, you wrote some of those beautiful arrangements of, of some of those beautiful theology I've ever read or thought about in my life. And, and we're sitting at Denver Ted's and you're aggressively, angrily arguing against the existence of God and, and calling anyone who believes in him a fool. And what happened? I, I don't want to know your arguments. I want to know what happened to you. And began to tell me this tragic story of a pastor who had, had loved him, had cared for him, had led him to Jesus, actually brought him on staff at a, at a prominent church and um, had him lead worship and kind of lead up this, this, this talented team of musicians that began to rewrite hymns. And, and, and this pastor was betrayed. He was eventually fired from the staff of that church. Um, and, and then um, literally within six months of this pastor leaving um, his position as pastoring this church, um, he, he's diagnosed with a brain tumor and, and within two months is dead. And, and this guy's sitting here crying at, at Denver Ted's telling me this story. That trying to adamantly argue that this really had nothing to do with, with his um, failure with, with his decision to not believe in God anymore. But, but I found his, his adamance less than convincing. You see, we face trouble. And maybe you don't consciously become an atheist. Maybe you don't consciously become agnostic. Maybe it's subconscious, though. Maybe we begin to, to live as though God was irrelevant and didn't matter and doesn't exist. But because we face trouble, because we live with the The strange presupposition, please hear me there, the strange presupposition that if there's a God, he certainly wouldn't bring anything into my life that I don't like. But but I think there's a second temptation in the midst of all of this. It's when circumstances begin to stack up, when difficulties begin to come into our lives, when trouble becomes, uh, begins to come into our marriage, uh, whatever the, the particular set of circumstances are, there can be this subtle temptation to begin to believe that maybe there's a God, but if there is, he doesn't like me very much. In fact, maybe he hates me. Maybe he's angry at me for something. I, I remember um, still to this day, uh, taking, this was several years ago, taking our family hiking at Mount Falcon. 
I went to Mount Falcon because you get a beautiful kind of vista, kind of picture of the city. And also there's a, a creepy burned out mansion at the top of, top, top of the hike. And so I thought Hayes particularly would like that hike. But it was a cold day. Um, Hayes was in kind of that phase of childhood where you don't want to wear pants, you don't want to wear a coat. Um, and even if it's going to be cold, even if your parents tell you it's going to be cold. Um, and he doesn't like to walk uphill. Um, I've never got out of that phase, but um, um, my, my son has grown out of it since. And I remember we were going hiking. We were going, we were just walking up this hill. It was, it was really cold, um, and it was uphill. It was honest, to be honest with you, it was a miserable day. Um, it's a, really, this whole story is our fault, not his. But, um, but, but he kept like sitting down and just crying, just angry. I mean, the poor guy was just furious. Like, like, and he's, and we're just like, hey man, you're, you, you, you didn't want to wear the coat. The coat's actually in the car. We could have put the coat on you. Didn't matter. That was our fault. Um, and it's uphill. Like, God designed this to be uphill. But, like, we didn't do this. No, it's still our fault. Um, he, he was just flat out angry and furious. And I remember this, this moment came upon me as we're hiking. Like, he thinks I'm mad at him. He thinks this is punishment. I, I want to show him this beautiful view. I want him to be able to climb over these walls and kind of, um, that was, we were going to let him go underneath the, um, the thing you're not supposed to go past. Um, I, want, I, want, I want him to be able to, 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 to see this cool burned out mansion. I want him to see this view of the city. I want to just get outside and, and, and have the, the blessing of being outside. And as we're hiking up this trail, um, he, he keeps sitting down and I realize like, He's frustrated with the circumstances, and he keeps looking at me like, this is punishment for something. Like, I clearly don't like him very much because I'm making him hike up this trail. I wonder how often we do that with God. We, we come into a set of circumstances we don't like, difficulties, pain, and our response is, have you forgotten about us? Do you dislike us? You hate us? Or are you mad at us? And I think those two temptations, to begin to think or to act as though God does not exist because we face trouble, or to begin to assume that if there are hard things in my life, God must be mad at me for something. I think those two trains of thought are absolutely suicidal. That they are devastating and destructive in some of the deepest ways imaginable. That is not where the psalmist goes. But what the psalmist gives us again is not a three-step plan to how to fix your life, how to, how to bring about better circumstances. Rather, he gives us a roadmap through the midst of those circumstances, through the midst of that pain. And I want you to look with me, um, particularly at the first three verses. Um, the first thing I'll point out to you, almost as an aside, but a very important one, um, is that this um, is, is not a psalm of David. It's not a psalm written by an individual. But rather, it's, it, it's a song written, it's a poem written by the sons of Korah. Sons of Korah were this school uh, of musicians that would write psalms, um, write songs and poems for the community. Um, in other words, what we're getting here is not kind of David's private journal of his prayers. No, what we're getting is, and I find this incredibly important, is, is we're getting a song and a poem that's meant to be prayed and sung together. 
One of our hopes, one of our prayers as a church as we come to the Psalms summer after summer after summer is that God would teach us that, that as we sit in this room, as we go about life in this community, none of us are meant to do so alone. That, that, that we're bound together as a family, as brothers and sisters. And so here's the reality. Some of you walked in this room tonight and everything in your life seems fine. And some of you walked in this room, and as we've already talked about, and your life is in shambles. You're in pain. Things hurt. And so some of you are sitting there bummed out that we're in another psalm that, that talks about despair. But, but here's the thing I want to remind you. There are people sitting around you right now who are hurting, are desperately hurting. There are people sitting around you right now who are hurting and haven't told anybody. And so the first thing that I think just even the, the simple title, the, the, the attribution of authorship of this psalm calls us to, to, to just stop and to recognize is that we sit in this room as a community and there are people in this room who are, are marked deeply by pain right now. And we are called to sing this song together, to encourage one another, to exhort one another, to bear one another's burdens, to weep with those who weep. And when, when, when one of us feels pain, to feel pain with them. And so right off the bat, the, the, the call in this psalm is, is to not engage in this life alone, I mean, but to do so with, with friends, to do so with the family, to do so in a community that will bear your burdens with you. And if your life is great tonight, you're anticipating when you should make the phone call to US Tie, you're going to discreetly go to the bathroom at just the right moment so you can get your call through before anybody else calls. Um, I, I, I want to encourage you to stop for a moment and consider those around you. You are here to love, to serve, to lay down your life, to weep with people who are weeping, even if you can't find a reason to in your own life. And the second thing I'll say is, well, just wait. <laughs> if you don't have trouble now, give it a couple days. Heck, give it a couple hours. It's coming. If you're new to Park Church, welcome. <laughs> Trouble's coming. Pain is coming. If you don't think you need this prayer now, you will. You absolutely will. And so what does the psalmist do first? What do they train us to do? What does God call us to do? Listen to the first few verses. Oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. The very first thing that this psalmist does is take on the people of God back to the paradigmatic moment of God's redemption and his salvation. He begins to recount from them, um, recount for them the, the story of their exodus, how they were brought out of Egypt, how he afflicted the people of Egypt with plague upon plague and judgment upon judgment in order that he might liberate the people of Israel, he might liberate his own, bring them out of slavery that they might be free. And then he didn't just stop there, kind of leaving them wandering in the desert. No, he, he drove out the nations before them. He drove out the trouble. He drove out the idolatry. He drove out all of it in front of them and brought them into their inheritance. 
And so the psalmist opens with this confession, this remembrance, this call to us, even now, even in the midst of your trouble, to remember. To remember the grace of God. To remember the kindness of God. To remember the love of God. And he he climactically brings it to bear in these last two lines, by the light of your face, for you delighted in them. At the heart of this salvation, it wasn't primarily a change in circumstances. It was this clear, clear point in their history that they could point back to, to see, one, the light of his face. Everywhere that phrase occurs, um, throughout the Old Testament, it's, it's a sign of God's approval, his joy, his grace upon them. It's like this Old Testament foreshadowing of what would be heralded in the New Testament as the grace of God. It is his blessed approval and joy over his people. And he delights in them. That the psalmist is recounting, remembering, and in your trouble, in our trouble, the very first place where to go is to remember. To remember his grace, to remember his kindness, to remember his mercy, to remember the light of his face. Now, a lot of pastors these days are getting in trouble. And they're getting in trouble because they are, um, especially in this day of the internet, I mean, you can go on the internet, you can find um, sermons that other people have preached on a text that you're preaching, and then you can just copy it down, and then you can stand up and preach it. So I have a confession to make tonight. That's exactly what I'm doing. But not like you think. Flip over with me to Romans chapter 8. I believe what we have in Romans chapter 8, which is um, one of the most beautiful chapters in all the Bible, is Paul's extended reflection, meditation on Psalm 44. Um, we read a text earlier um, where, we, where, where the place in this text where he actually quotes um, Psalm 44, reminding um, kind of in the midst of all of this grace, all of this glory, um, quoting, uh, quoting the verse that says, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. But as you even look at the outline of chapter 8, what you see is the same thing happening in Psalm 44, but now expounded by Paul for the church. And he calls us to remember something, to remember his delight, to remember the light of his face, his grace, and his mercy. And so listen to verse 1. There is therefore no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now the problem is that there's about eight sermons in those four verses, um, but, but I, want you to, I want to distill this down for you into this call that Paul has placed in front of us um, in the light of Psalm 44 for us to remember. Jesus Christ came, he took all of the punishment that was due to us and he bore it on the cross. God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus as Jesus hung on a cross and died in our place. There is now no condemnation. 
This is the New Testament equivalent of of Israel, the people of God coming out of Egypt. And he has set us free from the law of sin and death. And the the thing that would condemn us, the thing that would destroy us, the thing that would unravel us, the thing that that stood over us and against us. I mean, he has abolished it forever and ever and ever. And so the call at the heart of Psalm 44, the call at the heart of Romans 8, before he ever gets into the rest of it, which is going to include massive suffering. It's first this. You stand loved. For all who've trusted in Jesus, who walk according to the Spirit, we don't have time to go into all the importance of that central theme through Romans 8, but let me distill it down for you. It is for those who walk and think and live as sons and daughters of God who know his love and walk in his love, you are not condemned. You've been set free from condemnation. You've been set free from death. You've been set free from judgment. So how do we face trouble? We face face it first by coming back again and again and again and again. Not just once a week. Daily. And, and I would argue not just daily. And I need it over and over and over again. And I need it not just on my own. I need it from brothers and sisters and friends. And this reminder again and again and again. Do you know that the God of the universe delights in you? He delights in you. He does not condemn you. He does not judge you. He does not seek to destroy you. He's not just waiting for you to get your life together. He delights in you. And, and, and as we turn back to Psalm 44, um, he, he begins to first reflect on, remember, and the grace of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God. And then moving into verse 4, he gives confession, just a blatant, absolute confession of faith. Oh God, you are my king. An absolute statement of his allegiance to God. And then he goes on to say, I can't fix this. Which is, which is one of the hardest places to get to. We think if I can rearrange my life, where I talked about it, if I can just get these circumstances back in order. Uh, but, but the psalmist calls the people of God in the midst of their trouble to throw up their hands and say, oh God, you are my king and my bow can't fix this. My strength can't fix this. My wit can't fix this. Uh, my, uh, my incredible strategic mind or athletic ability, which is considerable. Um, it can't fix this. At the end of the day, unless you come, we're doomed. I can't make this better. You alone are my king. You alone are my God. I need you to act in the same way that you acted to to bring us out of slavery. I need you to come because I can't make this right. And then the next stanza, we're faced with a temptation that Christians everywhere happily abdicate. Temptation we fall into, temptation we give into, and yet this psalm won't let us do it. You see, we often look at trouble, we look at difficult circumstances, and we want to let God off the hook. 
We want to say that he had nothing to do with this trouble. He had nothing to do with these circumstances. He's there to help me. He's there to counsel me. But in in terms of his sovereignty, in terms of him bringing or permitting these things, intentionally permitting these things in my life, he had nothing to do with it. But but listen to the psalmist, starting verse 9. You have rejected us. You have disgraced us. You have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe. Um, you have made it so that those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You have made us like sheep for slaughter. You have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors. You have made us the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. Verse 19, you have broken us in the place of jackals. You have covered us with the shadow of death. For your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And I'm going to say something. I'm going to say it because the psalmist just said it. And and the, the warning is that you would not resent what this psalm just said. Your trouble is not an accident. God intended it. There's all kinds of mystery, all kinds of ways in which he brings it about. I'm not letting other people off the hook for their sin. I'm not, please don't misunderstand me, but, but at the heart of this psalm, if you want to get down to brass tacks, God was not aloof from your suffering. He intended it. It has a purpose. And I find this gloriously hope-filled. See, the other alternative is it's just random stuff that comes in your life and it's just terrible and awful and what do you do with it? But what this psalm asserts it claims, it declares is that your trouble has been designed by God and he's good and he loves you and he does not condemn you. I mean, see how this begins to work. See, see what this begins to do to your soul. You begin, and I think the order here is absolutely vital. Oh God, remembering his kindness, remembering his mercy, remembering his grace, remembering um, that he does not condemn us, that he delights in us, he causes his face to shine upon us. And then remembering, I can't fix this, he alone is my king, he alone is my God, he alone is my good. And then, you've done this. Do you see what that does? A God who you know, confidently know, he loves you and he delights in you. A God you know who is your king, who who your great hope is that he can make all things new. He really can restore things and make them right. And third, all of your trouble has been designed by this God who loves you, who wants your good, who wants your holiness. Dare I say it, he wants your joy. And then the final, the final stanza. You don't find in the midst of recognizing that sovereignty, uh, kind of this fatalistic resolve just to live in this place of trouble. 
You see the psalmist inviting us, calling us to cry out to God, oh, heal us. For the sake of your steadfast love, fix this, rearrange this, make this right. You see, this isn't sort of a a fatalistic logic that says, hey, God ordained this, he intended this, therefore we should just kind of wallow in it and sit, and, and once he's done, he's done. No, you see this call to recognize the hand of God in it, to absolutely trust his sovereignty, his goodness, and his love, and then to get on your face and plead with him to finish that work. We have a dear friend. For years, she struggled with migraine headaches. And, and we, we sat um, in her car the other night um, and, and just prayed for her. And we prayed and recognized, hey, man, God, you're king. You, you, you could have stopped this. You could have prevented this. You, you've brought, you've ordained this for a reason. May that reason be done. Recognizing his love, recognizing his grace, recognizing his sovereignty, and saying, oh, oh God, whatever work it is that you intend here, oh God, may it be completed even now. And may this headache go away forever. I, I don't know what trouble you're facing, but, but the call in recognizing the sovereign goodness of a gracious God who loves you is not just to sit in it, but with great hope, great desperation, maybe sorrowful joy, plead with him to come and make things right. And then to find the rock to stand on. Paul ends his meditation on this text. It was saying, neither disease, nor being beheaded or being persecuted. Uh, imagine all of the trouble. He goes through a massive list at the end of Romans 8. None of it, none of it can separate us from the love of Christ. This is a bedrock to stand on no matter what trouble you face or what lack of trouble you're enjoying right now. Knowing that the wave is coming, it's going to come. But that you can stand and this this right here is the one place on which you can stand. Nothing, nothing will separate you from his love. Nothing will separate you from his grace, his delight, his joy over you as a father. Let's pray. God, what you promise us in Romans 8, what, what, you, what you establish the foundations for us in Psalm 44, it is, it is not merely a cognitive understanding of your love, not merely a cognitive grasp of your grace and justification of my faith and how our sins are dealt with, but no, what you promise us is your spirit. That your spirit would come and, and take this this cognitive understanding that we've been adopted, this, this intellectual understanding that we've been forgiven, um, this, this, this clear kind of theology of how we've been liberated from sin and death and declared to be sons and daughters. And no, it says that your spirit comes. What you promise us is that your spirit would come and cause us to cry out in the depths of our bones, Abba, Father, that we would see you, that we would know you as a loving, loving Father who delights in his children. That in our innermost bones, no matter what the circumstances, 
We would find rest. We would find roots. We would find ground called the love of Christ. And so, God, I pray for my brothers and sisters that even now your spirit would come and ground them. I pray for my friends in this room who don't know you. God, I pray that you would, even now by your spirit, call them to receive, to love, to delight in, to trust in your love for them as a father. And may they believe in Jesus. And God, on that rock, on that fixture, may we stand in the face of trouble together. In your name we pray, amen.